Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Canadian Story. I'm pleased to have JJ on. Uh, Zach and I have both been following his uh, commentary, and he's a well-known source for uh, the media and others on what's going on in conservative politics in Canada, what's going on in Canada in general. So welcome to the show, JJ. Thanks for having me. Um, just a quick, if you want to give uh, the audience a 30-second bio, what what makes you tick? Also, you, the listeners can't see, but JJ has a glorious mane of COVID hair, I, I believe. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite it's glorious. It's inspiring. Yes. I'm in awe. <laughs> well, that, that is actually one, one, of, uh, one of many sort of weird eccentricities that I'm known for is, is weird stuff that I do with my hair from time to time. So, <laughs> But yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a political commentator, I guess. That's certainly been the job that I've had for the last 10 years or so. Right now, I I write a weekly column for the Washington Post. Uh, I describe the premise of it is that I write about Canadian issues for an international audience. So I work for the global opinion section of the paper. Uh, I've had that job for, uh, I think, four years or so. And, you know, before then, I I worked for uh, I worked for CTV for a time. I worked for the departed Sun News for a time. I worked for the (laughs) Huffington Post. I've, I've and, you know, I've been, you know, published in a bunch of other places. Uh, you know, but I specialize to to the degree you can say this in in sort of political commentary and the in the hot takes uh, sort of racket. Yeah, yep, that's what yep. I've always sort of aspired <laughs> to do and be. But then the other sort of uh, you know the other sort of parallel track on my life is that I'm also a, a YouTuber, and this is something that I've been doing for about six years now. And actually, it's now where I make the the vast majority of my income is is from YouTube. So uh, I I do a channel that is. Uh, you know, I've, I've specifically tried to sort of uh, separate it from my life as a political commentator. So I don't do the hot takes on my YouTube channel. I, I do sort of hopefully somewhat sort of thoughtful or sort of inquisitive videos about issues that relate to questions of culture and civics and history and, and national identity, you know, sometimes using Canada as a case study, sometimes not. And and I have a pretty international uh, audience. I just recently passed uh, you know, 280,000 subscribers. So I'm hoping to get to the big 300,000 pretty soon. So yeah. And, and, and what's interesting though, is that there's a lot of people that read my YouTube and don't, uh, don't, or sorry, that watch my YouTube and don't read my columns. And a lot of people that read my columns and don't, uh, sort of consult my, uh, uh my, uh, my YouTube videos. So that's, uh, that's a sort of interesting double life that I'm leading, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. And what is it like to, uh, I mean, that's, such a, a modern success story in a sense where you've been able to harness your, your, your mind essentially and make it just make you enough money that you don't really need a, a normal day, day-to-day job. Um, what did it feel like? When you, what, what, what was the moment you knew you'd re- reached that point? Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of a curious thing. And I mean, that's, that's sort of very flattering because in some ways I don't think of it as that I have a, a sort of like day-to-day job. I mean, I work very hard. I mean, I shouldn't undermine that at all. It's pretty exhausting to make a big, you know, 20-minute video every week and then to also, you know, write and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I've never worked in, in an office. You know, I've never had a sort of conventional nine-to-five job. And I never really sort of aspired to have that kind of career. You know, ever since I was in, you know, high school... I just kind of always thought that I wanted to make a life for myself where I could create things, where I could be sort of in the process of, of making stuff, of doing sort of creative uh, creative work in some form or another. I'm, 
I'm sort of like a, an artist by by background. Like I, I uh, sort of got into the whole racket of political of politics. I would say in general through uh, political cartoons that I used to draw for for many years. I used to have a political cartooning blog that was reasonably popular. But you know, even before that, uh, you know, I always sort of self identified as an artist. I'm somebody who likes to draw and make and make art and make you know things and put those things out there in the world. And I suppose that that kind of artist mindset has always sort of been with me. I, I never sort of imagined myself is really being somebody's employee as being part of a kind of like larger, uh, you know, corporate or, or sort of workplace apparatus being part of some sort of larger institution. I just always kind of th thought that I just wanted to be myself. I wanted to be brand JJ. And I hoped that uh, that JJ in all of his, uh, you know, multitudes would be a product that people would be interested in, in consuming. And I, I suppose I've been reasonably successful at that whether it be in cartoons or, or writing or or, uh, or or videos now. But, you know, it's it's been sort of an entrepreneurial effort. You know, it's been trying to understand what are the mediums that are available for that kind of uh, that kind of lifestyle, that kind of uh, entrepreneurial you know, sort of profession. You know, I, I like I said, I had a blog, you know, back when that was kind of the thing that people did. Um, and then sort of through the blog, I kind of got picked up to be a sort of freelance type writer or a contract type writer. You know, I did these kind of what they call, you know, hits on television, yep, which was always yep. sort of something that I aspired to. Like in when I worked for Sun News, like that was basically what I did. I, you know, they stuck me in front of a camera and said, hey, JJ, what do you think about the latest thing that so-and-so is doing? And, you know, I babbled about that. And, and you know, and then I realized that, that YouTube was, uh, when Sun News shut down, actually, I realized that sort of YouTube is the place where a lot of that kind of stuff is happening now. Like YouTube is sort of the the opportunity. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of the television of the 21st century. And it's, it's, it's a tremendously competitive uh, space, but it's also a space that sort of really rewards that kind of self-directed entrepreneurial sort of initiative that I, I would like to think I have. But, uh, you know, there's been trade-offs as well. You know, like there's certainly a lot of job security that comes from having a more sort of formal employer-employee sort of relationship. And, and certainly like, you know, I can't get a mortgage, for instance, because no bank accepts yeah, that what yeah, I do for a living yeah. is like real work. So there's, there's lots of trade-offs. But that, that creativity and that, and, that, and that freedom is something that I value very, very highly. And, I'm, and I, I hope that a lot of other people that are so inclined realize that it is possible in this, in this sort of wonderful age we live in to make a living just doing the things that you like. If, if you have the initiative to be constantly producing, to be constantly creating, you know, what is now kind of uh, derisively referred to as content, the, right, the content right. maker lifestyle is a viable one. So I love this because you self-identify as an artist, right? And we all have our, like you identify as a hunter and many other things. We all have these identities that we build, the us, the brand, like you said, the multitude that are contained in the JJ, who he is. One of the great parts of your multitude is that you're an artist who te artists tend to go left wing, but you have stayed staunchly in the right. Why do you think that is? I, I, I would think that it has something to do with what you said about freedom. And I, I think there's a lot of parallels to the artist's life and desire for freedom to conservatism. And I'd be interested to hear your drawing parallels on those things. Yeah, I, I definitely do think that that is a big part of it. You know that you know I'm a you know I'm a you were talking about my hair and you can probably hear that the 
you know, the way I talk and stuff is like, I'm a, I'm a bit of a eccentric person, right? You could, you know, the, the, the folks listening can't see, but you can see all the kind of crazy <laughs> crap I got behind me in my apartment. Right. Like yes, I'm, yes. I'm, there's a lot of aspects to me that are, that are pretty, that are pretty out there and, you know, can be a bit much, a bit extra as the kids say, right, but right. you know, that, that is to be a kind of eccentric person is to sort of celebrate a lifestyle of, of freedom and, and to want to live in a society that maximizes the freedom of the individual to sort of be able to, to pursue the life that you want to lead. And, and that is, I think, in some ways, a, a sort of classically uh, kind of conservative virtue as we sort of understand it to mean in sort of the 20th uh, sort of century notion. And so, I, I, yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. Um, but I also think, you know, and this is sort of something that I'm becoming more uh, aware of and trying to horn into a sort of uh, more distinctive philosophy, is the idea that, like, I'm just very grateful for what I had when I was growing up. You know, I lived a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle. I had two, you know, parents who were in a loving marriage and, uh, you know, I lived in a sort of comfortable suburb. I had a good school. I had good teachers. You know, my parents uh, could provide for me and my sister. You know, we lived, I think, in some respects, the kind of, you know, the Canadian dream, right? Like the sort yeah, of the, yeah. what I imagine to be like the the, the great promise of this country of, of sort of a comfortable, secure, stable, middle-class lifestyle. And I'm very grateful for that. And my parents always instilled to me that you should be grateful for that. And that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't have the sort of the privileges that, that you have. And, you know, we, we talk about sort of privilege as, as this kind of disdainful thing. And, you know, a lot of conservatives are sort of, you know, who has privilege or this kind of thing. But, you know, I, I do think it's a real concept. And, but the conservatism that comes from that is I think, trying to understand uh, what are, you know, like, what is that prosperity a product of, right? Like, yes, yes. What, what, what is our sort of success as a country, our success as a civilization and a, as a society? Like, what sort of thinking went into that? What kind of virtues and values went into that? And, and can we sort of seek to preserve those values? Can we seek to preserve what allowed my parents to to sort of provide for me and my sister the life that we had and can we sort of identify well what are the sort of like what are the 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 root causes of that and and you know and and rather than as i think i sort of perceive the instincts on the left to be to you know kind of argue that you know like to focus on sort of the deficiencies of our society and to sort of say that you know our society is you know quote unquote not working and that there's there's too much suffering and that there's too much you know that sort of stuff and i mean like and that's not to undermine the idea that there is no suffering. I mean, obviously, there is very real suffering and poverty and inequality and all these kinds of things. But do we have a do we know a credible path out of that? And do is the is this kind of like classic, uh, the classic kind of bourgeois middle class virtues of, of things like thrift and responsibility and manners and, you know, self-discipline and and those kind of virtues, the kind of virtues that I was raised under. Are those perhaps the the ones that we should perhaps be a little bit more active in championing, a little bit more uh, sort of unapologetic of sort of saying that this is, in some respects, the the path to a, a form of success, a form of of, of comfort and stability and, uh, and and sort of material security that we all sort of aspire to. So I, I guess in that sense, I'm not, uh, to get back to the original question, I guess in that sense, I'm not a stereotypical artist in the sense that I was, I've never thought of myself as somebody that's motivated by a great deal of, of sort of resentment from where I come from, per se, like that I don't resent mom and dad, I don't resent school, I don't res even resent authority figures, particularly. And that was sort of something that I think distinguished me as well. My thinking was that always that I owed a lot of these people a great debt of gratitude, and, and I should... Uh, 
I, I don't know. I should take them seriously and and sort of take their 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 lessons seriously and 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 sort of try to impart that to to others as well. So I don't know if that oh, answers. I, what, I, that definitely answers. What yeah. do you think forms that that line of thinking? The line of of um, appreciating your parents and uh, and respecting the authority figures in your life. Why do you think your brain went that direction as opposed to trying to tear those people down? I mean, I guess like you would just kind of have to say that I, they never gave me good reason to resent them. You know, that I didn't feel that I was ever actively oppressed by authority figures. I don't feel like that my that my freedoms such as they were, were, were being sort of, you know, infringed. I mean, I guess that that like, I don't know. And this is where we sort of come back to this, this concept of privilege. Like, and I, I try to be sort of self-conscious about this because like, if I had had a different life and, you know, we all, we all are like, all of our lives are in some ways, just a real product of the roll of the dice in some ways. And like, right, you just don't right. know what hands you're going to be dealt. Right. No. Like, you know, like my parents could have had a terrible marriage and that wouldn't be any fault of my own. That would have just been the circumstance that I was born into. And you know, that the way that their bad marriage would sort of percolate down to, to me would have affected sort of my views of the world. You know, if I'd had a bunch of bad teachers, which is again, like a complete roll of the dice, like who decides who your elementary school teacher is, who your high school teacher is, you know, we don't get to control any of these sorts of variables in our life. And, you know, I'm, I'm white, I'm male, like there's, you know, obvious privileges to be gained in, in, in sort of that. And I try to be a little bit self-conscious to the degree to which, like, have I just been extraordinarily fortunate and that that in some ways has, you know, kind of created a sort of, a sort of shelteredness or a sort of complacency and a kind of defensiveness towards a lifestyle that worked for me, but might not work for everybody. I don't know. These are the sorts of things that I, that I, that I try to be somewhat introspective about, but I definitely kind of think that there is a kind of false humility that people can sometimes have when they've had, you know, when they've had sort of a fortunate upbringing where maybe they, they're not willing to concede how common that is, that how many of us in this country actually do live quite comfortable lives you know, on the grand sort of scheme of things, like our lives have been pretty good. And and so the question is sort of like, can we deconstruct that sort of success formula? Can we, if, if, if we think of Canada as a country where most people are doing pretty good, some people are doing pretty bad, you know, some people are doing miserably, you know, can we kind of create a sort of philosophy that is based around the premise that first begins by conceding that most of us are doing pretty good? And then thus... Uh, our efforts to sort of share that goodness with others comes from, I think, a very accurate understanding of what makes those of us that are living well, living well. And I, I, like I said, like, I think there are certainly a lot of sort of arbitrary variables in, in that sort of success formula, but I would have to think, and I, what sort of keeps me sane is a, is a sort of faith that, you know, the formula is fundamentally replicatable. Like you can replicate the formula. It isn't fundamentally just completely arbitrary. There are arbitrary elements to it, but there are a lot of elements that you can you can replicate in in a vast variety of situations. And you, if not necessarily getting close to the ideal lifestyle, you can get relatively close to it. So what what about people who will like? I agree that that is kind of the goal of Canada. That is the, the stable, str- like secure upper middle class lifestyle. But there, there. I do. What do you think? Do you think we lose anything uh, in terms of like I don't know raw ambition and innovation by concentrating on that being our kind of idyllic life? 
Yeah, I think so. And actually, this is this is something that I uh, that I write a great deal about and I criticize is I think the complacency of of the sort of the Canadian culture, right? And which I think is is in part uh, a lack of of that kind of self uh, that sort of introspective struggle that I was just kind of articulating, like really trying to understand in a deep sort of way. Well, what are the key variables that have created what we have, and that you know. The uh, what is the famous line of uh, from George Orwell, where it's like you know, like life is a is a constant struggle to see what's in front of your own nose, right? Like you you really have to like I think introspection is just such an important virtue, and I think that part of the problem with this country is that oftentimes we are not interested in doing genuine sort of self analysis. We we get very complacent. We sort of just think that there's kind of this inherent Canadian wonderfulness that just sort of right. exists in yes. the ether. And then that is kind of why things are working well here. And and like, I think that actually a very vivid example of this, uh, we've seen during COVID, right? And I think that in the early days of COVID, when things seemed to be going well, you had some just really like, a stupid editorials that were being published in, in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto uh, Star that were just kind of saying like, oh, isn't it great how everything's going well? It's just that great Canadian wonderfulness in action. The Toronto <laughs> yes. Star actually used a line that I think is, you know, really quite abhorrent where they said it's our, our national DNA, right? Oh, like that's right, why our right. rates are low, right? Like it's literally like that there's just something that's just inherent in who you are we're as a Canadian. Better. Yeah. We're just better. We're just better. Right. And they're actually I think Jonathan Kay once wrote an article where the headline was just like Canadians are just better people. Right. <laughs> and that is the, that's, but it's like you can get pretty far in this country by just kind of asserting things like that. And and that's and that's something that that, that that frustrates me a great deal, because I don't think that's how success has been achieved in the past. And I certainly don't think that's how success is going to be achieved in the future. Right. Like uh, just sort of resigning yourself to. Uh, to a kind of status quo mediocrity, which is not, uh, which is not, uh, not the kind of uh, society that I sort of aspire to be. Yeah. Well, and of. I don't think it's the kind of society that we were founded on, right? We were founded by explorers and adventurers and things like that. And, and on ideas of, around religious freedom. And now, well, well, why don't we go into this? What's your take on the, our civil liberties being hatched, ratcheted down? Uh, for public by public health officials and and that seems to be going along with that com that complacency that you were talking about. That I mean, I think we're in the situation we're in right now with COVID in particularly in Ontario and uh, Alberta and BC because we were like, oh, we've got this. The Americans suck. Like, look at how bad they're all. Oh, they're all dying down there. And now America's open. They're happy. You know, great things are happening, and we're sitting in our homes, not being told by our premier that uh, the police are going to basically pull us over for no reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I, I'm I'm relatively like I have resisted giving too many hot takes during the COVID era, just because like, and this again, I think goes to my sort of bourgeois deference to authority that is kind of part of me is that I, I'm very sort of humbled by like how little I know about how viruses work and like how the sort of the transmission of a, of a highly infectious uh, disease like this works. So like I, I have been a little bit hesitant to offer like super firm statements on what should or shouldn't be done in terms of sort of the, the management uh, of the, uh, of the sort of the protocols in place. Um, Sort of that being said, I think that uh, I think that sort of the the mythology that was sort of being offered up 
early on, which is that sort of Canadians are just kind of like a fundamentally com- uh, compliant people. Like, I think that that was always a bit of a, of, of a sort of contrived narrative because certainly like here in British Columbia, and I'm not, I'm sure it's similar in Ontario as well. Like I've just, part of the story has just been that Canadians do not, in fact, I think, surrender their freedoms lightly. And it's not necessarily doing it in this like very firm libertarian sort of ideological way. But I just think like to a lot of like normal people, like normies, you know, people that are not (laughs) invested in sort of like the political dimension of this whole problem is I just think like a lot of them, it just does not occur to them to change their lifestyles, right? It just does not occur to them to pay sort of authority figures a great deal of heed and to like, you know, obsessively check their, you know, websites every morning to sort of see what the premier or what the health authority has told them to do. Like, it just like, I think that they, they, you know, they're aware of it and, and they sort of want to behave responsibly, but they sort of calibrate their opinions, uh, based on their own sort of inner, uh, you know, determination of, of what is or isn't responsible, what is or isn't sort of safe. And, and, uh, and like, and there's a there's a problem to that. Like, obviously, these kinds of things do require some degree of sort of mass coordination if they're going to be successful. But I think that there has been a sort of lack of grappling with the reality that Canada, as it actually exists, is quite different than the Canada of the Toronto Star editorial page yes, going on about our yes. national DNA and you know the idea that like you know you uh, how do you get the Canadians out of the pool? Well, you just tell them to. And you're like, yeah, these kind yeah. of like mythologies, right? That like people are very fond of and are very sort of sentimentalized. I I think that they're, they're sort of fundamentally dishonest things. And I think that, you know, this is a country that I think is, is difficult to mobilize in a lot of ways. And it's difficult yeah, to get true, them to do this true. or that, you know? And, and I think that in part the... You know, again, like I don't want to speak too definitively about this kind of things because I think at the end of the day, we just don't know a lot about how the virus works or doesn't. And, you know, I often think like, you know, a decade from now, you know, Malcolm Gladwell or whoever is going to write some book and it'll be sort of like, oh, we sure got a lot of things wrong. Remember when we were, you know, thought this about masks or we thought this yeah, about that? Yeah. You know, like I, I foresee like that that is obviously where this is ultimately going to end. And so as a result, you can't be, you can't be sort of too, uh, too, uh, authoritative when you are making statements in the present. But I, I just, I do think that that is an aspect of the whole thing that I'm sort of most interested in is just the idea that like, it does not occur to a lot of Canadians to sacrifice their, their liberties willingly. Like right. it, it just, it just doesn't occur. And so as a result, any, anything going forward that, that rests on assumptions about the inherent compliance of the Canadian people I think that those kind of assumptions really sort of need to be uh, re-examined. Whether or not you're sort of seeing that as a heroic thing, that like, you know, we're not being told what to do by big government, or if you're seeing this as like a sort of a terrible and kind of ominous thing where it's like, oh my God, our, our rates are so high now because, you know, we're, our people just will not be, will not listen to instruction. I think in both ways, like this, this reveals a certain truth about the country that is too often, I think, denied on both sides. I love, I love that. I've, I've never heard anyone say that. Well, what I had, what you do hear a lot, obviously, is people talking about how Canadians are so compliant. So can we, can you dig into that a little bit more? What, where do you think that spirit of, I love it because ultimately the emperor doesn't have any clothes. And I sometimes get so tired of people pretending that the emperor does, right? It's like, no, 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 we give them their power. We can take it at any time. This is just the government or the government uh, governs at our, on our consent, right? It's based on what we think. So why do you think, 
because uh, oh, I mean, one of the jokes out here in Auto- Ontario is uh, Doug Ford is going to announce more rules that nobody's going to follow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, why? What do you think it is about us that that is that why that makes us that way? Well, I mean, it's because it's sort of part of the of the sort of the national mythology of this country, right? Like, it's part of the you know, and like this is my other sort of big thesis is that anti-Americanism is so 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 central to this country. It is the only sort of true form of nationalism that this country has ever had, and I I say that very like dejectedly because like right, I'm considering right. myself super super pro-America and like you know much to the sort of irritation of a lot of my critics, yeah. like <laughs> I am really like hyper pro. American Canadian, because I see us as being part of the same culture. I see us as being part of the civilization. But, you know, in order to justify, you know, two different uh, nation states, you have to come up with a sort of uh, patriotic rationalization. And from the very beginning, I think that it has benefited a lot of people in positions of power in, in this country and even in the colonial era to sort of suggest that, you know, Canadians are, are these very deferential people. You know, Canadians don't want any of that silly business of right. democracy and republicanism and self-governance that those crazy the Americans do. No, you know, Canadians are just sort of complacent, passive people who put up with our, you know, beloved tyrants and do what they ask us to do, because that's, of course, our, that's our essence as the people, right? Like, it's a very sort of self-serving, elite-friendly sort of rationalization that I think has repeatedly been trotted out over the course of Canadian history to justify, you know, uh, anti-democratic, sort of anti-sort of freedom uh, measures of one form or another. Um, but, you know, I think it's always been false. Like, I think that Canadians have always been, you know, sort of rugged individualists in the way that I think everybody on this continent is. You know, this is the new world. This is the place where you go to to not, you know, listen to being bossed around by some, right, you know, right. arbitrary yeah, yeah. authority. It's a place where you go to be a to be a farmer, or a lumberjack, a fur trader, an engineer, or a small businessman, you know, to live in a free and democratic society. And that's always been the case. And there has been a lot more. Uh, rebelliousness and a lot more sort of turmoil and a lot more resistance to elites in in Canadian history, or a lot more just frankly indifference to elites, right. which is part yeah. of uh, which is part yes. of the story of Canada that I'm very interested in as oh, well. Oh, I want know? to get into that more. I love that. I love that. That is it. We we are kind of indifferent to them. We don't treat them like the Americans treat their elites. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and I, I think that that bothers a certain type of Canadian as well, right? So, for example, like I'm super super like anti-monarchy like i don't like right, royalty right. or any of that kind of stuff Neither but i think that I. there's a kind of well that's great that's <laughs> the right but, uh, i don't i don't see, like, I don't see its utility god save the queen but, i say <laughs> it has, like, like see this is but see like this is the thing it, it, it has no utility and there is a certain type of canadian who insists in defiance of all available sort of you know evidence that canadians somehow like look to the monarchy and look to the governor general and like look to all of this sort of falderall as a great sort of sense of of meaning and and purpose and like and when i think that when you look at actual canadian history what you see is you see like the elite cares about that kind of stuff the elite loves you know all of this state opening of parliament and the speech from the throne and the governor general's garden parties and all this kind of thing because that's who it exists for but your average rank and file canadian like could not does not care like is barely aware of the royal family is barely aware of who the governor general is i thought it was so preposterous the other day you know when governor general payette resigns and you know the national post has this like war in europe style headline yes. Payette quits. right it's like your average person wouldn't know who julie payette is if they you know you know ran right. into her with yeah. her shopping cart right it's like it's, <laughs> yes yes it's, uh, true 
and it's the same it's the same thing with like royalty and and all of this kind of stuff and and all of this 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 the, the british connection the empire all of these kinds of things like for most of canadian history your average canadian has just been extraordinarily indifferent to all of that kind of stuff because your average canadian does not conceptualize themselves as as a subject as somebody right. whose fundamental idea right. the I, identity of themselves comes from serving someone else or comes from living under the dominion of someone else so i think it's uh and, and that's why I think that, like, you know, when we go back to COVID and stuff like that, any th sort of theory of, of public policy or public planning or public commentary or public analysis that rests on just a fundamentally, like, warped misunderstanding of Canadian history is one that's doomed to fail and is one that's doomed to not be particularly uh, uh, persuasive or interesting or resonant with the vast majority of Canadian people, because that's just not how they sort of conceptualize themselves and their, and their role in this civilization. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I, li I like that a lot. What, where do you think that? So yeah, the, we're the new world. You, you come here for. I want to go into those ideas more because it seems to me that the immigrants that are coming here are exactly like somehow. And I know you've written about this, but I want to talk about it. Somehow, Canada has avoided the sins of almost all right wing parties outside of Canada, and we are pro immigration as a party. Now, not. Everyone in the party's pro-immigration, but we're enough that it's not a major debate here in Canada. Why do you think the conservative movement in Canada, particularly, but Canada in general, has not never really struggled as much with this problem? Maybe more so in Quebec, but you know what I mean. Well, yeah, quite a bit more in Quebec. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would push back against this a little bit. Um, you know, my own thoughts on immigration have sort of like really sort of run the spectrum over over the uh, over the years. Um, I, I do think that there is actually a quite a great deal of, of sort of resentment towards the immigration status quo in this country. I think that if you look at polls, like very like a very solid majority for going back decades has never been in favor of the bipartisan consensus as far as immigration goes, which right. is that it should be raised forever, right? Like every single government, be they conservative or liberal over the last few decades, have always moved to raise immigration in defiance of a public that has continuously expressed a preference for immigration to either be capped or lowered. So I do think that immigration is actually an example of an issue some, somewhat like abortion, where there's just been kind of this kind of you know, like bipartisan sort of elite consensus to just take this issue off the table and, and not sort of debate it one way or another, because, you know, I, I think that, you know, there is... <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be sort of too reductive about this, but, you know, like, I think that there is a kind of consensus at, at sort of the highest levels of our society that, that immigration is, is fundamentally good, not just on a moral level, but, you know, for the purposes of the economy, that it's sort of like one of the foundations of this country that we shouldn't really sort of contest in one way or another. So I think that there's just, uh, you know, a, a lack of, of, of interest at sort of an elite level of, of politicizing the issue and making it... Uh, making it something to sort of to, to demagogue on and to sort of whip up the, the crowds on. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that that entirely is like, we might agree that that's a good thing overall, that we'd have less sort of uh, politicized immigration demagoguery as a kind of like a fact of our politics, which I think, you know, can obviously be a very ugly and, and dark sort of thing when it's in sort of full flower. But on the other hand, like, I don't really know if we deserve too much credit as a, as a sort of a people or even as a party or as a movement or whatever for that, just because I do think it has been imposed through rather undemocratic means. And I think that like if Canadians, including many immigrant Canadians, and we shouldn't be, you know, too sort of saccharine about this, 
if left to their own devices, I think you would have a lot more uh, anti-immigration politicians in this country. I think that the immigration debate would be much more uh, part of our, our politics if you had a sort of less sort of controlled democracy. Um, what was I going to say? The um, because like you, it's just it's hard to just argue with those numbers, right? Like it's hard to like look at the polls and to sort of say that there is a sort of broad consensus in favor of continuously higher right, immigration. Right. Like that is just, I think that's just one of the most ignorant sort of things you can say. And actually, oh yeah, this was the point I wanted to make is that uh, it's it's important to remember that when Justin Trudeau uh, ended the, the debate over the uh, electoral reform, you know, one of his yes, great disappointments yes. for the left, if you go back and look at some of his explicit comments that he made justifying why we had to abandon the adoption of a new electoral system, he said it was because he did not want to allow anti-immigration parties to True. rise to prominence. True. He, and we, 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 we may recall that Kelly Leach, you know, I, who knows what she's yes. up to these days, but <laughs> yes, yes. she was at the time was kind of like, you know, public enemy number one in sort of the eyes of, of, the, of the left, right? And uh, and Justin Trudeau explicitly sort of said, like, do you want the Kelly Leeches of the world to have seats in parliament? Right, and right. that's not it's not an unjustifiable fear if you fear about that kind of thing. Right. Because I think that if Canada became uh, more democratic and if you had a, a sort of parliament and a, a political system that genuinely reflected uh, the will of the people, I, I definitely think that you would have a lot of uh, a lot more sort of anti-immigration uh, 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 voices being heard. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I mean, I guess and, uh, just have... one other one other point I would make as well. I, I just if I can go yes, on a, absolutely, a tangent absolutely. here, because, you know, like like I say, like I, I like to push back against uh, against conventional wisdom. And I do think that this country becomes sort of captive to conventional wisdom far too often. And one thing that I have done crunch the numbers on uh, is that I found that there's very, very, very little evidence that the conservatives have done well with immigration, uh, with immigrant voters. You right. know, this is the great sort of mythology of, of how sort of Stephen Harper won his majority government in 2011. This is sort of like the great mythology of, of Jason Kenney. But, you know, I, I and people, uh, you know, I, I have a link to it somewhere. Uh, uh, but like I crunched the numbers. And, and what I found in the 2011 election was that, uh, you know, the only reason why uh, the Conservatives did well in some of these immigrant-heavy ridings was simply because the NDP was very strong and that there was right. big vote splitting on the left. And so that made the Conservatives competitive in ridings that they traditionally wouldn't be competitive in, right? So I think that it's important that when we talk about immigration, either at a sort of like political level, as a public level, as the sort of the level of the, the sort of this mythologized sort of sentimental sort of way, it's important that we be very blunt and very honest about where this country actually stands on this issue. Right. And, no, and, you know, fair what what voters actually want yeah yeah well what do you th so it's interesting because i i could definitely see the argument that trudeau's making about like radicalization you see that in israel you've seen that now maybe a bit more in germany <clears throat> what's your take on that is there too much democracy is there a, can you have too much democracy no, no. And, and like this is I like I consider myself like a very sort of radical pro democracy person. And, and you've probably sort of heard me already sort of allude that I think that Canada is much more of a much more of a managed democracy than I think we like to admit. Like, I think there are far too many sort of checks on the people right, <laughs> as opposed to checks right. on the politicians. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like in, yeah. In, yeah. So, um no, and I because one of the things about democracy that is great is that it's force it's it's the most honest system of government that's ever been devised, right? right. Like when you right. have a purely democratic system, you are forced to confront the often unflattering realities of your nation, 
Right. right. So like I was in, I, I, I was in Israel a few years ago during one of their many, many elections. Yes, and yep. you, you see how they have like, you know, they have a million different political parties that represent all of the different factions of their society, which, you know, is bad for government. But it also makes the Israelis very sort of clear eyed about who lives in their country. Right, like who right. are all of the constituent groups of this country? You know, the, the, the Russians, the Arabs, the real fundamentalists, the kind of bourgeois, secular middle class, like all of these sort of constituent groups have their own political parties. And that makes political deal-making, you know, just a kind of a fact of life there. And the Israelis have a sort of, you know, an honesty about themselves, you know, and I, this, I suppose, comes from a kind of like Israeli bluntness that some people find off-putting, but I find to be quite, uh, right, right. quite endearing. But, uh, you know, because Canada has this kind of somewhat more managed democratic system, you know, where our political parties are so hierarchical, you know, where, you know, candidates are rejected all the time for the most trivial of offenses, where all of the votes are whipped, you know, where party membership is so, so, so small compared to like in the U.S. where you can vote in a primary just by self-identifying as a Republican yes, or a yeah, Democrat. Yeah. Like the problem with that is that when you have a system that's overly managed, you have an elite, a political class that is sort of insulated from, I think, a lot of the, the honest realities of their country. And that seems to me, you know, that's kind of like a, an unsustainable course to be on in the long term. And then eventually you will set yourself up for some sort of big destabilization, which I think is, you know, last great time we had that was with the uh, was with uh, the rise of the Reform Party and the Bloc Québécois, uh, yes, which were yes. both, you know, kind of anti-elite consensus kind of parties that sort of took advantage of a political class that was seen as being, you know, really sort of preoccupied with things that mattered a lot to them and things that they had convinced themselves were of great importance to the Canadian people. Like what the Canadian people want more than anything else is to get Quebec signature on the constitution. Right. You right. Know, like yeah. everything must be settled once we get that issue done. Right. And, and the like, Canadians are like, we don't really time. care if they sign the document. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like your, your most Canadians just are, are powerfully indifferent to that. But I, I think that they're, if you have a system that's not democratic enough, those kind of dysfunctions can become too prominent in, 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 in the practice of governing. So uh, yeah, I, I think that like the, the, the converse of this, and I shouldn't be, you know, too, too flippant about that is that the converse of that is that when you have an ultra democratic society, as I believe they have in the United States, you do have these periodic sort of spasms that are very difficult, right? Like I think the, the election of Donald Trump was an extraordinarily difficult thing. Like we shouldn't right. sugarcoat that at all. And, and certainly like in, in the, uh, the, the raid on the Capitol and all of this kind of thing, like the, the Trump's election did unleash a lot of sort of dark uh, forces into government. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, when you read American political commentary, when you read sort of great American sort of public intellectuals, they they grapple with that like they're not they're not sort of saccharine in the way that canadian public intellectuals are they sort of say like wow geez louise we've got this country where a lot of people believe in crackpot conspiracy theories how do you deal with that we have a country right. where there's like a great deal of anti-immigration sentiment a great deal of sort of resentment for for education and expertise you know and as well like on on the extreme left there's a great deal of uh, of sort of irrationality there too that sort of begs a uh, a, a a reckoning and I just I, I I like that, but more like I like the idea of of having a an elite class that has um, institutions that sort of throw in their face. Look, this is what your country is. This is what you have to deal with. This is the country you have to govern. Whereas in Canada, like I said before, like I just think that often 
this kind of like fictionalized sentimental idea of what Canada is can can sort of rise to the front and then our our media and our politicians govern for that country that exists only right, in their that, imagination. That, that isn't real. I love that. Yes. So yeah. we have about five, maybe six minutes left. Um, what politicians are you watching closely right now that interest you? And uh, and then to, to finalize it, I would like I would, I would like it if you would wouldn't mind summarizing that worldview that I think you've expressed to everyone, which is essentially honesty is the key, right? Just yeah. frankly discussing reality and observing it. That's how we get to a better society by not pretending anymore and saying, no, actually this is what Canada is not what we want it to be necessarily. Yes. Yes. I mean, when like there is no pure manifestation of sort of unfreedom as I can put it, then when you are being made to say things that are not true, yes. right? Like that is, I, I suppose, is sort of like the core of my philosophy, I guess, is that when you are being forced to say or to, to, to defer to things uh, that are not true, like you are not really sort of living as a free man, I suppose. No, and that's no. that's why that's why the story of the emperor's new clothes uh, that you alluded to earlier is is so powerful and why it's such an important sort of part of our kind of collective folklore because it is very much based on this idea that like how how monstrous it is to live in a in a sort of society where your ability to to sort of speak honestly and to acknowledge what is so self-evidently before you is 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 denied right so that's but uh in terms of uh of of politicians that were that I'm sort of looking at I mean I don't know. I've been, I've been pretty, uh, honestly, I've been a little checked out of Canadian politics right, recently. Right, yeah. I've been a little, 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 I think, you know, it's not uncommon, I think for people on sort of the, the center right in general to real, to really believe that we're in a bit of a, of a lull and that yeah. we're sort of awaiting yeah. like this, the, this next act we're waiting for Godot and we don't know what it, that form that's going to take. Exactly. I mean, yeah. the one that I guess, like I, I, you know, I'm kind of inclined to believe that Aaron O'Toole is not going to win. Yeah, and right, I don't think right. I'm breaking any big ground in saying that. <laughs> no, I, I so, think there's a number of people who believe that, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so as a result, I'm I'm sort of trying to already sort of project ahead. Like, what what is the response to that going to be? Like, what is how is the Conservative Party, the Conservative base, going to react to that, you know, third consecutive failure to sort of unseat Justin Trudeau? And I think that Pierre Polyevra is sort of positioning himself as, I think, the kind of next in line because he is sort of somebody that's positioning himself as a bit more of the unapologetic sort of populist type. And he's very popular with the base from what I can tell. He has a lot of sort of uh, uh, social media supporters. Like whenever yeah. I see uh, yeah. Yeah. Aaron O'Toole post something on Instagram or whatever, the comments are always like, where's Pierre? He's so much better than you, right? <laughs> so I, I, think, I, think it will be, I think it will be his turn if he wants it. Uh, and so I just think that that's sort of, he's certainly the man to, to watch as, as far as that goes. Although, you know, again, like, you know, he had his chance this time around. Right, he right. Didn't he didn't go for it, it for yeah. reasons that people are always asking me why, and I don't have a good, a good answer to, but uh, no, I mean, he's probably the most interesting political person, I suppose, on the rise that, that I can sort of think of right now, because I, otherwise I do kind of just think that, that, I mean, I, I don't think Trudeau's going anywhere anytime soon. I don't see anything really interesting happening on the, on the side of the the left on the NDP, you know, I wrote a column in the yeah, Washington Post the other yeah. day, just talking about what a, you know, lackluster character Jagmeet Singh has been. <laughs> Man, so, so lackluster. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, we're just, we're not in a very exciting or vibrant time in Canadian politics right now. And I think that's, that's just sometimes how it is. You know, we often speak of the, 
of uh, you know Canada sort of being in conversation with other countries. But I think that sometimes Canada is just doing its own thing, and it's not necessarily uh, going to be a great renaissance of free thinking and right, independent right. ideas and new ideologies the way it is in other parts of the world. Sometimes Canada is just you know different and, and, <laughs> and in an unsatisfying way. Yeah, sometimes we're just a little bit boring. I've always said that, yeah. that Canada is <laughs> yeah. Canada's a lot like the world's suburbs. <laughs> well, it kind of is, right? I yeah. mean, and it's, there's, there's, uh, there's, there's reasons for that. And, and some of it comes to, uh, like what we we're talking about before, just some of our democratic institutions, I think, are quite flawed. And so in some ways, I do think that that is, in some respects, the most important fight is to is to say, if we're unsatisfied with the nature of our politicians, if we don't feel like we are consistently producing the caliber of leader that we think we need, maybe we should be taking a much harder look at the sort of the institutions of our democracy, looking at our political parties, looking at our parliament, looking at elections, looking at, you know, different, yeah, uh, yeah. looking like at the that. Senate, looking at all of these kinds of things mm. and like demanding a higher caliber of institution in order to produce a higher caliber of leader. Oh, that, there's a line. I think that's the title. A higher, a higher. We just need to demand more of our institutions. And they will produce better politicians. What was it? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Ones that are ones that are equipped for the for the very obvious challenges of the twentieth century, right? Like we are not going to solve the problems of the twenty first century with twentieth sort of century caliber leaders. No, no, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really honored to have you here. I've I've been following you for a long time. Love your commentary. Uh, I just like what you do, which is essentially, as we've discussed, you just speak truth. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is. 